Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the Leverhulme Trust, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about the development of Stoicism with David Sedley, Lawrence Professor of Ancient Philosophy and a Fellow of Christ College at the University of Cambridge. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Peter. Glad to be here. Well, we're going to be talking about Stoicism now, and this is obviously one of the schools of Hellenistic philosophy, which I've been covering in the podcast. One of the striking things about Hellenistic philosophy is that it develops into several different schools, Epicureanism, Skepticism, Stoicism. But in the case of Stoicism, it seems that they differ from each other, so there's disagreement within the school, at least in terms of emphasis and to some extent in terms of doctrine. So what actually allows us to say that this is a single school as opposed to just a bunch of different people who we retrospectively call Stoics? Right, well that's actually quite a a complex question because there are certain features which we think of as characteristic of the Stoics which they in fact share with all the schools in their own day. One example is that by contrast with Plato, for whom the ultimate reality is at an immaterial and transcendent level, the Stoics think that fundamentally what there is is body and they've got that in common with a few adjustments with the Epicureans it's not really in dispute so that's not a defining feature or if if you like it's a defining feature of the age rather than of the school then equally and you were implying this in your question there are some things on which the Stoics didn't even agree with each other for example some Stoics thought that the world ended in a periodic conflagration and started again. There are other Stoics. Where everything turns into fire. Exactly, that's... Everything, that's right. There were other Stoics who, who denied that. So th- there were points which weren't really at stake when it came to, to school membership or school orthodoxy. But there were defining points of agreement. There were points on which you really had to um, sign on the dotted line if you were going to be a Stoic. And let's just think of some of those. Well, in physics... To be a Stoic was to believe that the world is a supremely rational, good, and indeed divine organism. That is a theory held by no other school at the time, Um, and it's a a point on which there's no significant disagreement. Even though that is something they would agree with Plato about. Uh, That's right, indeed. In a sense, it's a development out of their reading of Plato's time years, so it's not entirely novel doctrine. But in their day, they proclaim that position, and they're in direct opposition to the Epicureans, who take the absolutely opposite position. The world is an unorganised or self-organising, but irrationally structured collection of atoms, um, any values are ones which have come out of it in an unplanned way. So one of the ways that their belief in the rationality of the world marks them off as a distinctive school is that it puts them in perfect antithesis to the main rival school, the, um, the Epicureans. In epistemology, all Stoics agreed that there is a kind of infallible grasp, which they call the cognitive or cataleptic impression, although there were many variations on how that could best be defended against sceptical attacks, it remained an article of faith. And most important of all, and this really was the defining feature for any Stoic, in ethics, you could not be a Stoic without holding that only one thing is good, namely virtue, and a so-called good, conventional goods like wealth and health, um, are in fact morally indifferent. They don't make your life any better or happier when you've got them. Although, According to most Stoics, there are still reasons for pursuing them, but these are instrumental reasons rather than ways of actually fulfilling your own goal. So that's uh, that's really is ultimately, in all ages, the indispensable component of Stoicism. That last example is an interesting one, I think, because there's 
kind of the overarching view, which is mm. that only virtue is good, and you're not allowed to disagree about that, as it were, if you want to be a card-carrying Stoic, but you are allowed to disagree about the status of the indifference. Some Stoics think there are preferred indifference and some don't, although the standard view is that there are preferred indifference. That's right. Having preferred indifference, saying that there are prudential reasons for pursuing wealth and health, is a way of making the Stoic look outwardly pretty much like anybody else. They, they, the, the Stoic holds down a job, uh, goes to the doctor, and generally pursues normal family values. So there were, admittedly, one or two Stoics, but only in the first generation who disagreed on that and took the more extreme line, that there's literally no preferability of health over disease. It depends entirely on what you do with them. You might lead a much better life ill than somebody else could lead healthy. So that initially was um, a point of disagreement. But one of the things that may emerge as we go on is that actually there was more free thought in the first generation of the school than there was in subsequent generations. Is that partially because there develops some kind of feeling of allegiance to the school's founders, you know? I think it is. It's a pattern you see not just in the Stoa, but in all, at any rate, most of the major philosophical schools. There's a huge difference between the first generation when the doctrine is forming and subsequent generations. In the first generation, let's take Plato's school, the academy, we have pretty good evidence that Plato's leading colleagues, who included, by the way, Aristotle, um, (laughs) disagreed with him pretty fundamentally um, on issues like are there forms. But it was after Plato's death that his his thought became canonized. Once the founder of the school is dead, followers in subsequent generations feel a commitment to studying his text, interpreting it in the best possible light, and developing his ideas. That happened in in the academy, it happened in the Epicurean school, uh, and it happened in in the Stoa. So we've got lots of evidence that first-generation Stoics disagreed on many issues, including the one you mentioned, because in particular um, one leading Stoic, probably in his own day as important as Zeno, called Aristo of Chios, did defend the view you mentioned, that there's literally no difference of value between so-called indifference. Um, And uh, he was a very independent thinker. Uh, It was only after Zeno's death that it became quite clear that Zeno had really won. History is written by the winners, so subsequent generations really made Zeno the fountainhead of Stoicism. It might very well have gone the other way. It might have been the Aristonians. I guess one thing that's unusual, though, about the Stoics is that even though they have this allegiance to a school founder like Mm. the Platonists and the Epicureans, in the case of the Stoics, we actually credit someone else with systematizing Stoicism in its full glory, namely Chrysippus. So to what extent is the core of Stoic doctrine really Zeno's work? And to to what extent is it, as it were, Chrysippus's interpretation of Zeno? I know that's a pretty difficult question, given the sources. It's difficult, but it's the key question. Uh, Well, there's no doubt, I don't think anybody disputes that that Chrysippus was the person who really turned um, Stoicism into the major philosophy of the age, as it was, as it came to be. Partly because Chrysippus wrote a huge amount, 705 scrolls his works were said to amount to. All Uh, of which are lost. All of which are lost. A huge tragedy of ancient philosophy. Well, there was an eminent scholar, uh, F.M. Cornford, who said that if the excavators of Herculaneum 
um, were to, to turn up the entire 705 scrolls of Chrysippus, any student would gladly swap them for one scroll of Heraclitus. But I think this is, has caused shock in more <laughs> recent generations, and I don't think many of us would, would, would accept that. But these included many, many works on logic. And although Chrysippus didn't invent Stoic logic out of nothing, he was clearly the person who turned it into a major logical system, one which could actually rival Aristotelian logic. It's a lot different kind of logic based on um, the relations between propositions rather than individual terms. But it has won enormous admiration in recent generations since it's been reconstructed. So there's no doubt that that Chrysippus was the major figure. And you could repeat that point for other areas of philosophy too. But still, we just need to ask the question, how did this relate to Zeno's original input? And I think the answer is roughly as follows, that uh, Zeno didn't write a lot, and he wrote with more flair than rigour. So there was lots of daring stuff um, in Zeno's writings, but he hadn't really worked out the system um, in a very rigorous way. Once Zeno was dead, his successor Cleanthes, and then subsequent Stoics, including Chrysippus, the next um, Stoic head, had the task of debating exactly what the meaning of Zeno's philosophy was. Now, they never, as far as we know, said Zeno got this bit wrong. It was a, it was a primary assumption that Zeno got it right. In this respect, philosophical schools are a little bit more like religious movements than we like. We tend to think that philosophy departments ought to be. Uh, Zeno must have been right, but there was a lot of scope for reinterpreting what he'd said. And there were many debates between Cleanthes and Chrysippus as to what was actually the right way to interpret Zeno. And although they're cast in these terms, which are more reminiscent of biblical scholarship, perhaps, than of philosophy as, as we know it, they did turn into very valuable philosophical debates. So just to give you one example... The unity of virtue, this was a thesis which in one form or another had been held by every major philosopher since Socrates, it would seem. Uh, if you've got one virtue, you've got all of them. Now, what, what had Zeno said about this? Well, he'd said that uh, ver- any virtue you like is just wisdom in a certain relation. So courage is wisdom in the face of danger. Justice is wisdom in the face of uh, matters of distribution, and so on. Now, what did that mean? Well, according to Cleanthes, that meant that there's really only one virtue, namely wisdom. And when you put it into this situation, it's called courage. When you put it into that situation, it's called justice. Oh, no, said Chrysippus. He doesn't have to mean that. What he means is that there are several different kinds of wisdom, and each of them specialises in one area of conduct. Perfectly legitimate debate, and I think probably it was Chrysippus' view that, um, that eventually prevailed. But the terms in which it was cast were, what does Zeno really mean? That was the way the game was played. But when they talk about that, is what they're doing more of an exegetical task? Or is it more like, this is the true view, so it must be the one Zeno had, because they have a principle of charity or fidelity to their school yeah. founder, so yeah. whatever the truth is must be what Zeno said. It's, it's not quite as bad as that, because that would, <laughs> give them, that, that would mean they could invent anything they liked for Zeno. They had to go by the letter of the text. Some, many important questions Zeno had simply left open in the sense he hadn't, his text didn't fully determine it. Sometimes Zeno had sent something quite explicit that there was no way they could get out of, and they were left with defending. And sometimes that caused embarrassment. So the, the most embarrassing case is that uh, in Zeno's own day, medical opinion tended to favour the view that the rational mind is in the chest rather than the head. And Zeno was so confident of this that he produced a syllogism to prove it. Uh, where your voice comes from is where reason is. Your voice comes from your chest, so reason is in your chest. Well, okay. QED. Uh, Q- QED. Uh, Unfortunately, within a generation or two, medical science had proved that was false and that actually the rational mind was in the head. 
But even after that, even the most scientific of Stoics uh, felt committed to defending Zeno's view against all the medical evidence. So uh, it could have its downside, but uh, again, this is reminiscent of biblical literalism. There are many analogies um, which fall outside the history of philosophy as we understand it. And I guess that one of the ways that Stoics develop the ideas of their founder is not merely in internal debate about the meaning of Zeno's words and writings, but also external debate, and particularly with the skeptics. So that skeptical attack on Stoic positions seems to have had a lot of influence on the way that Stoicism itself develops. That's right. I mean, earlier I mentioned the Epicureans as the natural enemy, but there was another enemy as well. And uh, what you refer to as the skeptics, indeed they are often referred to as the skeptics, but I think one should actually use that word with some care. Later on, starting in the first or possibly second century AD, there was a school which actually called itself the skeptics, hoi skeptikoi, and that was another name for the Pyrrhonists. They were a quite independent movement. What we talk about as skeptics in the Hellenistic period are not people who call themselves by that name. The word skeptic is a lowercase s, uh, and it's just our word skeptic means somebody who subjects um, every proposition to systematic doubt. And the people we call the skeptics with a lowercase s in the the Hellenistic period are in fact the academics. Now, who are the academics? Well, they are the school of Plato. The school founded by Plato started out, as I've already said, uh, trying to develop Platonic doctrine out of a close study of Plato's dialogues. But in the early to mid 3rd century BC, there was a complete change of direction. A head of the academy called Archesilaus took the view, which many of us would share actually, that the real spirit of Plato's dialogues doesn't lie in the doctrines you can extract from them. It, it lies in the way that Socrates has shown challenging every philosophical conceit that he's presented with. And this is what we should be doing as philosophers, said these new academics. We should be challenging every, every claim to certainty. And so a systematic attack on Stoic convictions uh, was uh, started in the uh, academy. And over the next two centuries, that's what philosophical debate was largely about. It was academic attacks on Stoicism, Stoic responses, trying to patch up the doctrines, and then a further set of moves by the academics. And this picture of inter-school debate and the entrenchment of positions among the schools, Mm -hmm. I think is nicely symbolized for us by this famous story of the embassy of the philosophers to Rome in 155 BC. right? Right. So can you sort of tell us about that? Yes, it does illustrate uh, the point in a way. Uh, of course, it's also it's a famous occasion because it marks a transition as philosophy moves out of the Greek world and into the Roman world. The event was that the Athenians had been uh, subjected to an enormous fine for the sacking of um, Oropus. And uh, th- th- they were fined 500 talents. This was a huge sum. And they had the idea of sending to Rome to appeal against this fine to the Senate none other than the three heads of the major philosophical schools, the head of the Stoa, the head of the Academy, and the head of the Peripatetic School. They didn't send an Epicurean, and uh, this is probably because the Epicureans were notoriously anti-political. So the three heads of schools went off as ambassadors. They did a pretty good job. They got the fine reduced from 500 to 100 talents. But they also did something with much greater historical significance while they were there. They took the opportunity to gather... Roman audiences and present their philosophical wares to them, although it wasn't literally true that no philosopher had ever been um, in Rome before. This was the first time the philosophers had a real impact. And Carneades, who was the great head of the academy, the sceptical school at this time, really shocked his Roman audience uh, by doing the following. Uh, One day he gathered an audience 
and launched a, a passionate defence of justice. Audience goes away satisfied. Next day, he calls another meeting and uh, makes a speech denouncing justice. Well, the Romans really had no idea what to make of this. Uh, no doubt this was part of his sceptical methodology, which is, as many of us believe about all the best philosophical problems, there's a great deal to be said on both sides. That's what makes them good philosophical problems. This, was, I think, was Carneades' idea, and it's also his way of promoting suspension of judgment. So that was... Um, Carneades perhaps had the greatest shock value, but uh, Diogenes of Babylon, who was the head of the Stoa at the time, had a terrifically positive impact as well. And you do get the feeling that it's really from that date that Stoicism kind of enters the Roman intellectual bloodstream. Sort of like the Beatles going to America and kicking off rock and roll. Exactly so. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened then in the following generations? I mean, as you said, this event symbolizes the transition of the Hellenistic schools into the Roman world. Is there, in fact, an immediate kind of... Uh, knock-on effect where Stoicism and the other schools develop within Roman society? Uh, Not an immediate effect, but an educational trend, first of all. Romans sending their sons to Greece to be educated will want to include philosophy in the education. Roman politicians uh, and other kinds of dynasts and generals like to have a philosopher, usually a Stoic, uh, in their own household as a kind of personal advisor. And we see that again and again. Cicero, though he himself belonged to the academy, in fact, he had a, a resident Stoic. Um, Augustus, the future emperor, had a, a Stoic called Athenodorus um, in his household. And the way it culminates is that you end up in the 2nd century AD with a Roman emperor who is his own philosophical advisor, Marcus Aurelius, uh, actually wrote a book, which we still have, called To Himself, where he acts as if you were the Stoic counsellor uh, to, to the emperor, because he, he, he has both roles. Right, so we're heading towards this period, which is sometimes referred to as Roman Stoicism, mm. with Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius. But there are major Stoics in the period and the time running up to Cicero as well, right? So what's distinctive about Stoicism of that period, sometimes called Middle Stoicism, I guess? Yes, we do have this term, Middle Stoicism. Do you you like that? I don't like it very much, but uh, I am sometimes forced to use it. There were two Stoics in particular who uh, earned this label, Panaitius, who was head of the school uh, until 110 BC, the time of his death, and his pupil Posidonius, who never became head of the school in Athens. Indeed, the Athenian school had more or less finished that day. But he moved to Rhodes, uh, the island of Rhodes, where he um, ran a very successful school. This was part of the the decentralization of philosophy away from Athens. Now, uh, there are ways in which these two are different. In many ways, the amount of variety they bring to Stoicism is no different from the, the sort of differences that had been rife in the school before that. But one thing that's very well known about them is that they took a new uh, and very close look at uh, the writings of Plato. Uh, They really tried to bring Plato into the Stoic fold in a way that nobody had done before. This wasn't a radical break, however, because even before Panaetius, his predecessor, um, Antipater, had written a book arguing that all the major Stoic theses were ones that they shared with Plato. In other words, the idea of forming an alliance with Plato um, was already present in the school. But um, Panaitis took that further, and Posidonius took it a very long way. Indeed, there's one famous, or some would say notorious, fact about Posidonius, which is that he actually abandoned Chrysippus' main thesis in psychology and replaced it with a platonic one. Now, what was this? Well, according to Chrysippus, 
and he claimed that he was developing the views of Zeno here, passions, strong emotive states, are in fact intellectual states, they're states of judgment. So let's say you're celebrating a lottery win, you're jumping for joy, you're doing things that lottery winners do, spraying champagne over everybody. This either is or is a function of the belief that having a lot of money is a good thing, which is false, and also that uh, this kind of behaviour is appropriate to somebody who's had that happen to them. Uh, and Krasip's had a, an impressive and very successful psychological theory of that kind, which could be derived ultimately, I suppose, from Socrates, who, was, you know, who, who had been himself a great um, intellectualist. But um, Posidonius took the view that um, this was quite inadequate, because actually the emotions don't always keep pace with our judgments. So it may be a year down the road, the lottery winner still thinks it was a good thing to win the lottery, but he no longer feels elated. So the emotion is a, has some degree of in psychological independence. And there were various uh, um, illustrations of that kind to show that it's much better to treat emotion and reason as having some degree of separation. And so, what did Poseidonius do? He said he reverted to Plato's theory. Plato had in the Republic and uh, also in the Timaeus introduced the idea that the soul in fact has three parts, two of which are non-rational. And uh, Poseidonius Sidonius reverted to that, that Platonic doctrine. So it sounds like one thing that marks this period of Stoicism then is a kind of syncretism, maybe even uh, an aggressive move against other schools where you try to claim that all of their insights can kind of fit under the teaching of your own school. Is that part of the motivation for what they're doing? I don't think it's a case of aggression, but rather of forming an alliance. And syncretism can be seen as a kind of alliance. I like the word syncretism better than another one that's sometimes used, eclecticism. Eclecticism is a kind of mix-and-match idea that you just you, you might pick ideas at random and put them together. But actually, the kind of move Posidonius was making in bringing Plato back into the Stoic fold was a kind of dynasty building. It is to do with philosophical ancestry and pedigree. Because the... The question the Stoics had to ask is, who was our founder? Whose ideas are we trying to develop? And the usual, the, certainly the early Stoic view, and I think the favourite one, was Socrates. Socrates was the one person we, who was known to have lived a genuinely philosophical life. Stoicism, more than anything else, is an attempt to discover the theories that will enable us all to be like Socrates. So when early Stoics where we say that they had um, an interest in Plato, well, what this really means is two things. One is they're reading Plato in order to find out about Socrates. And another is, as came up a little bit earlier, that they're, uh, uh, that, that uh, Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, had studied in the academy, so he'd actually absorbed quite a lot of the ideas from the Timaeus, and these became part of Stoicism, whether or not the Stoics recognised their Platonic pedigree. Now, what Posidonius was doing was going one step further than this, his idea was that it's Plato himself we should be reading, but not because Plato is the ultimate authority. You can go further back to find the ultimate authority. When Plato described the tripartite soul with its irrational parts in the Timaeus, Timaeus, his main speaker, was a Pythagorean. And actually, the reason why Plato is important is that we can get back to that very ancient or august authority, Pythagoras, 6th century BC, no surviving writings if he, if he ever wrote anything at all. The, the only way you could find out his views was by going through people you believed to have been influenced by him, and Plato was a conduit for that. So it's part of the game of creating an old and august philosophical pedigree. To some extent, that carries on through to the so-called Roman Stoics, in other words, the Stoics who work after the fall of the Republic, right? Because Seneca takes Plato as a 
kind of inspiration. Uh, there's been some discussion about Socrates' influence on Epictetus and so on. So, well, I guess two questions. One is whether that's right. And the other is, if that is right, then is there anything really distinctive about these later Roman Stoics? Or do they take Stoicism in a new direction at all? Or do they just kind of keep doing what Poseidonius had been doing? Well, the answer to that is going to be quite a complicated one. Certainly, um, Platonism is in the background to Seneca's writing. Uh, But I think the figure of Socrates is the more important one. These... Roman writers, although they had some kind of interest in other areas of Stoicism, their their greatest contribution to philosophy was undoubtedly ethical. Uh, Stoic ethical writing was the the area in which it continued to have influence even after the demise of Stoicism. Writers like Epictetus, Seneca, and even Cicero, whose Deofikis is a kind of um, Stoic work, they were writing the best treatises on practical ethics that anybody wrote in antiquity, and this was not something that the Platonists were good at. So even when Stoicism disappeared, as it more or less did in 2nd century AD, uh, Stoic ethical writing, for example, the Handbook of Epictetus, they survived as part of Platonism. The Platonists recognised that Stoicism had this unique contribution to make in practical ethics. Now, where did that come from? Well, more than anything else, from their, their own particular evaluation of Socrates. So Socrates remains an extremely important figure, and just let me give you one illustration. The, um, the Romans had um, a tradition of honourable suicide, and the great Roman Stoic hero, the younger Cato, committed a very Stoic uh, and very Socratic suicide during the Civil War because he was preserving his integrity and uh, it was seemed to him better to die than to accept Caesar's pardon. And in the build-up to his suicide, there were two things he did. Um, one is he discoursed on the theme, only the wise man is free. And your, your ability to commit suicide is your ultimate guarantee of freedom to a Stoic. Uh, that's a very Roman use of Stoicism, and it becomes very prevalent. Uh, the, it, they didn't call it suicide. It, what they called it is a rational exit from life. Um, and what that means is you can, the reason you're free is that you can always choose to die rather than uh, accept, than accept a compromise with a, with a tyrant, for example, uh, or, or perform some immoral act. That may involve suicide, or it may involve simply not avoiding the death that's coming to you anyway. So that's the guarantee of freedom. Now, the other thing that Cato did on um, on this occasion, and this is why this is the, the second thing I was going to mention, is that. Uh, he spent his last hours reading and rereading Plato's description of Socrates' death. Mm. Uh, so uh, here's the point, that choosing your own moment to die and preserving your integrity by doing so is really a Socratic contribution. It's how Socrates had died. He didn't commit suicide, but he did rationally choose his moment to depart from life. Speaking of which, we're just about out of time, so we'll have to make a rational exit from this podcast. But I'd like to thank David Sedley very much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. And next time we will start to look at these Roman Stoics, starting with Seneca. So please join me for that next time on The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. (music) 